The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Isaiah 42, 1-9. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands await for his law. Thus says the God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to to God. God. Thank you, Paula. Good morning, everybody. Uh, We are uh, right in the middle section of the beginning half of our summer series on uh, various themes in Isaiah. And today we come to the first, uh, what we call servant songs, the 40th through 66th chapters of Isaiah is called the Book of Comfort. And uh, it's where we hear about God and how he uh, was planning to send a servant. And that servant had a specific role and mission to heal. To heal people, to heal places, and to heal things. To to accomplish justice, uh, to promote flourishing, and to use Tolkien's words, to make everything sad come untrue. And so the setting behind or the backdrop behind uh, this particular passage and the book of comfort is that Babylon is about to invade Jerusalem and they're going to conquer Jerusalem and they are going to put the Jews from Jerusalem into forced slavery. Now uh, among the Old Testament scriptures these, uh, Isaiah 40 through 66, these are the most quoted uh, Old Testament scriptures in the New Testament. The whole Bible, and Isaiah is, is uh, really an ampli- amplification of this reality, the whole Bible is written by and for people who experience pain, weakness, setback. Uh, the core message here is that God is fully invested And God gives special attention and is especially concerned for the welfare of underdogs. People that he refers to as bruised reeds 
and smoldering wicks. If you can imagine a candle uh, about to flame out because the wick is tiny or fragile, that's what he's talking about. And so the entire life of Jesus Christ, who is the suffering servant that Isaiah talks about and who would later come. Jesus was always running toward the margins. He was always running toward the poor and the disabled and the disadvantaged and the sick and the widows and the orphans and the sinners. There was this attractional quality about those people groups as far as Jesus Christ was concerned. And so, so before I get into uh, what this passage tells us about this suffering servant, uh, I'd like to ask for a show of hands class, and I know it's the weekend after July 4th, school's out, but let's just pretend school's back in session and I'm going to ask for a show of hands. If any of these words fit your experience, please raise your hand. Weak, guilty, ashamed, afraid, hurting, invisible, terminal. Raise your hand, please. Okay, that's just about everybody in the room. What follows is for you. A gentle healer, a stooping conqueror, an ascending physician. These are the things that Isaiah is forecasting about who Jesus Christ would be for us and for the world. And so let's start with the gentle healer. Uh, it says in the first verse that God is going to put his spirit in his servant and his servant's mission, Jesus' mission, is going to be to bring justice to the nations. Now, that word justice, it's used three times in this passage, and it's from the Hebrew word mishpat. And uh, I don't know if there's a better phrase in the English language that captures the, the, this theme of mishpat or biblical justice than uh, the Anglican Communion's Book of Common Prayer when it talks about the Lord's saving health. His saving health. He's a healer who will establish justice, it says in verse 4, not just in human hearts, not just in human lives, but on the whole earth, over the whole earth. You know, we, we've talked about this before, that, that John 3.16, even the most famous verse in the Bible, where it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When it says God so loved the world, the word world includes people, but so much more. The word there in the Greek is cosmos. He so loved the universe. He so loved the water, the earth, and the skies, and, 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 and the dirt, and, 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 and bricks, and, and, and mortar, and, and rain, and, and, and all of these other things. The planets, the galaxies. God so loved all of it. All of it. That he gave his son. And the method that the gentle healer is going to come into the world uh, to employ, to initiate, is described in this way. A bruised reed he will not break. He's very careful with, with fragile souls. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will open the eyes of the blind. He will free the prisoners. He will mend all of the dark places and illuminate them. And so, so the great Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote this comforting little book called 
a bruised reed. And, 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 and one of the things that Sibs says in there is he's making observations just about who Jesus is and, and the nature of Jesus and what it was like to experience Jesus. He says that Jesus borrowed names or he identified himself with, Sibs says, the mildest creatures. Jesus is a lamb, he's a dove, he's a mother hen, he's a physician. Uh, he's also a big brother, he's also a, 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 an adoring husband, he's also the friend of sinners. And when our hands go up like they did just a moment ago, and when we think about where we are weak and guilty and ashamed and afraid and hurting and invisible and terminal. When we think about those things, those are the, the times where, where we are tempted the most to doubt him, to doubt his tenderness, to doubt his gentleness, to doubt his healing impulse. When we are bruised, we doubt him. You know, this Hebrew word uh, that we get the word bruise from, it's not just a dark spot on the skin that, that, that feels tender when you touch it. This kind of bruise is the kind that reaches the vital organs. It's the kind that, that shakes you. It's the kind that, 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 that um, you know, both physically and or figuratively tears your guts out. It's the ripping of the flesh or it's the ripping of, of, of whatever your emotional you know, condition is on the inside through incredibly painful circumstances. And so for Israel, it was the riches to rags story that they were living. Because remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about how Isaiah is initially set in the year that King Uzziah died. And, and if you'll remember from two weeks ago, that King Uzziah was, was a king well known for the golden years that, that happened under his rule. He was like everybody's ideal politician and leader. Throughout Israel, there, were, there was flourishing, there was, there was you know, health, there was wealth, there was prosperity. Everything was humming along under King Uzziah. And, and his, his reign stretched over many, many years, and then he dies. And, and, and it becomes a national crisis for Israel, that their, their great and esteemed leader is now gone. What are we going to do? And, and, and who's going to rule over us next? And you know who that was? Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, who was going to come in and force them into slavery, murder their own relatives in front of their eyes, trample on everything that they cherished, including their places of worship, take everything from them that they had worked for and built their lives upon and force them to be slaves for the rest of their lives. This is not merely a setback. This is not merely a downturn. This is the rest of their lives. That's what's coming for them. And so the response is despair. Game over. My best life, our best life, it's in the rear view. Our worst days are ahead of us. We are a smoldering wick. We're about to flame out. That was the, that was the national consciousness of Israel. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty back together again. That nursery rhyme would resonate 
with the people of Israel in the days of Isaiah. Even kings, even rulers could not put them back together again. Either could not or would not. This gets personal with us too when, when, when our lives uh, start to assume a similar experience that the whole nation of Israel was experiencing. Sort of, you know, you're at your peak and, and you're happy and then, and then something comes in and just takes it all away from you. This happened with Rabbi Harold Kushner who wrote a very famous New York Times bestseller called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. You know, Kushner was a very you know, esteemed, uh, successful uh, rabbi and uh, his son uh, was diagnosed with leukemia. And of course, uh, as any of us would do, they, they, they surrounded his son with prayer. They, they subjected him to the best uh, health care that they, they, they could. And uh, his son didn't get better. His son eventually died. And so he wrote this book. And, and, and this book, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, is, is sort of his, his diary, his reflections on that experience of losing his son to this awful disease. And one of the big questions that, 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 that he started to ask, uh, you know, theologians call this sort of the, the, the they, they call it the subject of theodicy. How can a good God allow such bad things to happen? How can evil exist if God is good and loving and kind and everything else? And that was the, the question in, in real time that, that Kushner and those who loved him and his son wrestled with. And, and, and Kushner's conclusion was this, either God is all-powerful but not loving. Because if, if he's all-powerful, there's no way that he would allow a child to die like this. So he's either all-powerful and not loving, or he is all-loving but not all-powerful. That even the king of kings' horses and the king of kings' men can't put Humpty to together again when Humpty has the great fall. What's being said here is that things are not always as they seem. That we see through as through a mirror dimly. But one day we will see with abundant clarity face to face that for the people of God, it is utterly impossible for Humpty not to be put back together again. It is utterly impossible impossible if your life is anchored in to Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. He is a motivated physician. Our confusion lies here. We don't see our pain from his vantage point. We don't understand our stories in the way that he understands our stories. We interpret weakness, guilt, shame, fear, pain, invisibility, terminal situations, having our guts teared out, torn, torn out from within us, we interpret those situations oftentimes as God or the universe and the cruel dark forces just taking a dagger and just stabbing and twisting when for the people of God... It's actually something much more surgical that's happening that we don't quite understand in the same way that, 
that maybe a four-year-old doesn't understand uh, when, when, it, when, when, when her parents are holding her down while, while a nurse comes at her with a needle in order to make sure polio doesn't happen in her life. She doesn't understand polio. All she sees is the needle. All she feels is the sting. Israel was in that same place. It's like they're on the table getting a shot and they don't know what for. You know, Israel is, is thinking, we're in hospice for the terminally ill. And, and the Lord is saying, no, you're on the operating table. And what lies ahead for you, here's, here's the truth about the suffering servant and, and, and what he intends to accomplish and most certainly will. The truest thing about your future is not decline and death. The truest thing about your future is triumph and resurrection. And the great thing about that is it's true whether you feel it and whether you can believe it or not. Because his faithfulness does not depend on yours. His strength and his execution in these things does not depend on your confidence that these things will happen. It only takes a mustard seed, very small, a small seed of faith for a mountain to be moved. This is the comfort here. Verse 4, the servant, the suffering servant will not grow faint like we do. He will not become discouraged until he has established justice, wholeness, flourishing. So, so this is really comforting, I'm sure, to a lot of it. it, it a lot of us. It's especially comforting to me. And one of the reasons why is that, that one of the things that's going on in my story right now is that my mom is dying from Alzheimer's. And she's in the later stages. She does not remember my name anymore. Um, she's confused about whether or not I'm married. Not sure if she has any awareness anymore that she has two granddaughters uh, through Patty and me. Uh, we repeat the same conversation about 15 times over the course of an hour when I, when, I, when I visit her. Mom had a baby faith, a tiny little Christian faith, a little bitty mustard seed. Professed faith in Christ just a couple of years ago while she was still somewhat lucid with us. And one of the comforting anecdotes that, that, that I go back to a whole lot is in, is in a little book by a couple of young pastors uh, off the West Coast named Jamin Goggin and Kyle Strobel. And what they did, what these two young pastors did was they traveled to, to the homes of, of, of several, you know, sort of modern-day iconic sages like, you know, Eugene Peterson and J.I. Packer and, and, and others, right? And so there was a couple that they interviewed named James and Rita. And Rita also, like my mother, uh, had Alzheimer's. She's since deceased, but she wasn't at this time. And, and, and she was taking, I think, her second or third nap during the interview. She sort of retreated to the bedroom, took another nap, and it was just the two interviewers, the two young pastors, and the husband, James. And James said that Rita is most afraid of for, that she will forget Jesus. That's the thing she fears more than anything else as she... As she considers her disease. And James said, I keep reminding her what matters is not that you remember him, but that he remembers you. 
Bruised reeds, he does not break. Smoldering wicks, he will not allow to be snuffed out. He's a gentle healer. He's also a stooping conqueror. Listen to how, listen how the Lord also describes himself. I am the Lord of glory. That's in verse 8. Verse 5, I created the heavens. I spread out the earth. I give breath to all people. And who does he say we are? Verses 6 through 9, blind idolaters in prisons of our own making, sitting in the darkness, bruised reeds, smoldering wicks. We are wrecked. We are the weakest, we are the vilest, and we are the poor because of the sins committed against us and the sins committed by us. We've reduced ourselves and we've been reduced by this tragic world in which we live, this violent world in which we live. So that's, that's sort of the backdrop. He's strong, we're weak. He's great, we're small. You get the picture. And so the song that we sang uh, a few moments ago, the last song in our, in our congregational singing, it's a beautiful, lovely, modern hymn by Matt Papa and Matt Boswell, two, two of, I think, the best writers uh, of our time right now in terms of congregational singing. One of the lines, did you catch it? He welcomes the weakest and the vilest and the poor. The weakest and the vilest or the poor are the ones that Jesus is especially drawn to. So um, for you thrift store shoppers, you're familiar with the phrase, one person's trash is another person's treasure. Everything that you see me wearing right now is from a thrift store. I have this visceral reaction against the idea of paying full price for an article of clothing. And so, so I'm constantly on the, hook, on the lookout for, for decent articles of clothing that are cheap. Did you know that you are not trash in the sight of it? You may think you are. You may feel that there's something about you that's just trashy. It's where we get things like shame and self-loathing and insecurity and social fear and nervousness. Like all of these feelings come from this idea that we are trash. The truth here that's abundantly communicated, not only here but also throughout Isaiah and the rest of the Bible is that you are the treasure of God. You're his share, you're his inheritance. You're, you are what he regards as his very great reward. Uh, he takes great delight in you. He rejoices over you with loud singing. Uh, as the bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so the Lord your God uh, rejoices over you. You guys, I'm just quoting scripture right now. These aren't words that I'm making up in my own brain. and I'm not that good of a poet. These are words I'm quoting directly from scripture about God's posture toward you. Most of these words were written when Israel was straying away from God. It's just so ironic, Isaiah is. A couple weeks from now, we're going to look at chapter 53, which is sort of the pinnacle of, of this book of comfort where it talks about Christ who, who would be despised and rejected by men, He would be punished and mistreated. One of the things it says in there 
is that we regarded him, or we would regard him, or we will regard him, the greatest treasure imaginable, as if he were trash. It says that there's nothing in Jesus that would make us desire him. Nothing. How ironic is that? Because everything about him should make us desire him. And everything about us should make him say, there's nothing in them that I should desire them. They're weak, they're vile, and they're poor. But he's not like that. Which is why C.S. Lewis wrote this. If God were proud, if he were pompous, on his high horse, if God were proud, then he would not have us. But he is not proud. He stoops to conquer. What a great line. He stoops. He condescends. He gets on our level. He even puts himself beneath us in order to conquer us. Lewis goes on. He will have us even though we have shown that we prefer everything else instead of him. Have you ever witnessed a famous or wealthy or powerful person treating a smaller in stature, less prominent person as if they were the most important person in the world? A very prominent leader in our town, in our city of Nashville, uh, one day allowed our oldest daughter to shadow him uh, so that she could understand the way that he does his work, right? It was an assignment. Find somebody, shadow them. And, and she says, well, I want to follow this person. And we're like, oh, he's probably way too busy. He's doing all of these big things. And he has all these people that, 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 that he has to tend to. He's got a heavy travel schedule, etc." She says, no, I want to shadow him. And he said yes and gave six hours to her on a Monday, six hours, and treated her like a queen. The whole day was about her. That's a great person right there. And it has such, so much less to do with, with position and salary bands and things of that sort, and, and so much more greatness does with, with your willingness to, to get on the level of people that others at your level tend to ignore, tend to brush off, tend to just pay no attention to. Another person in our, in our church the other day, this is, this is a person who's, who's toured um, with, with one of the greatest bands in the world. One of Nashville's most creative musicians and artists. His question to me the other day was, how do I get involved with the special needs community at Christ Pres Church. Because I think that's my jam. You know, Kathy Keller, who's Tim's wife, um, if you go into their home in, in New York, uh, on their wall they've got this framed uh, series of handwritten letters from C.S. Lewis, written to Kathy when she was a child. Our friend Melanie Penn is here. You've seen those, you've seen those letters, right? 
Have you read them? So the letters, he's like, it's like he's writing to a peer. So, so she's reading his Narnia books when she's a child. She's like, I don't know, nine years old or something, and she writes these letters to him, and she gets a handwritten letter back from C.S. Lewis, Oxford professor C.S. Lewis. Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes her back every time in his own hand. And he writes to her as if she is a scholar just like he is, with respect, with esteem, as if she were a colleague. That's greatness. Henry Nouwen, public intellectual who taught at Notre Dame and and taught at Yale and Harvard, decides at a certain point mid-career at the peak of his success and fame and upwardly mobile trajectory that he's going to go downwardly mobile and spend the rest of his life among disabled men and women, many of whom are mentally disabled, and he developed such a close friendship with a young man named Adam who was mentally disabled that he wrote a whole book about Adam. And the book is called Adam. Here's what he says about his young friend who, because of his disability, was never even able to utter Nowen's name. Adam was sent to bring good news to the world. It was his mission. As it was the mission of Jesus, Adam was very simply, quietly, and uniquely there. He was a person who by his very life announced the marvelous mystery of our God. I am precious, beloved, whole, and born of God. Adam bore silent witness to this mystery, which has nothing to do with whether or not he could speak, walk, or express himself, whether or not he made money, had a job, was fashionable, famous, married, or single. It had to do with his being. He was and is a beloved child of God. It is the same news that Jesus came to announce, and it is the news that all those who are poor keep proclaiming in and through their very weakness. Life is a gift. Each one of us is unique, known by name, and loved by the one who fashioned us. The lower a great person stoops. the more you realize how great they truly are. This is the story of the suffering servant. This is the story of Jesus Christ, who, being in nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and became our servant, stooping, getting on our level and even putting himself beneath us in order to conquer us. Who is this suffering servant? It's the one that was spoken of all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. The one who would be bruised. Your heel will be bruised, but you, through that bruise even, will crush the head of the serpent. A stooping conqueror, and lastly, he is a sending physician. So, So I came across this survey Uh, that was um, done. It was a one-question survey. Two groups of of teenagers who answered the question. And 
the teenagers were asked to read the Good Samaritan parable from Jesus. And then the one question was this, who are you in this parable? How do you see your, where do you see yourself in this parable? The first group was a group of affluent white students. And their answer was, I see myself in the Good Samaritan. And all of them answered that way. And then 100% of the other group, which was disadvantaged, economically strapped Latino students, 100% of whom said, I am the man on the side of the road, beaten down, kicked to the curb, in need of help. And passages like this, and, and, and the life of Christ itself forces us, doesn't it, to ask the honest question, who really has the advantage between these two people groups? The real advantage goes to the weakest and the vilest and the poor who self-conceive that way, who understand themselves in that way. Because it's those of us who understand that, that we are weak and that we've got some vileness in us and that we, we are poor. That actually puts us in the best position to be those who mend bruises. And, and, and to be those who, who take a smoldering wick and, and, and fan the flame. Jesus is a sending physician. And, and, and that creates two metaphors for us to con consider as a church. First, we're a hospital. You know, the greatest woman I think that Patty and I have ever met is Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, Johnny is the founder and president of uh, an organization called Johnny and Friends who, um, who serves globally uh, men and women and children with special needs and disabilities of all kinds. Johnny herself uh, uh, became paralyzed from the neck down after a diving accident when she was a teenager, and she's somewhere in her 60s now, also fighting cancer. And Johnny graced Patty and me with the gift of time. Uh, she had us out to her headquarters, and it was just her and the two of us. And at one point, she just spontaneously started singing a hymn, uh, which was just so touching to us. But the most moving and memorable moment was when we were exchanging stories, and I can't remember if it was Patty or me, but one of us relayed a story about uh, someone in our church who's, who's part of the, um, the, the community of people with special needs and disabilities in our church, which is sort of a hallmark of our church. And Johnny started to tear up. And, and you know, the, the, the fluids that, that tend to happen when you start to tear up started to happen too. And, and she just, in, in such a very poised, nonchalant, matter-of-fact sort of way, just glanced over at Patty and said, Patty, there's some Kleenex over there. Would you grab one and would you please wipe my nose? And so Patty grabbed a Kleenex, wiped her nose. And one of my greatest regrets is that we did not keep the Kleenex and frame it. And I, I, I mean that. I mean that because that was one of the most sacred moments that, 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 that Patty and I have ever had together. This is what a church is actually meant to be, where, the, where there is a shared collective enthusiasm about both receiving and giving care. This is, this is actually something 
that we can, we can confidently say that God has made Christ Presbyterian Church remarkable in this space. You know, the things that we raised our hands to a moment ago, weak, guilty, ashamed, afraid, hurting, invisible, terminal, um, you know that the people who are described this way are, are actually more often than not the ones who do most of the shepherding and pastoring and serving. Like, like those who have ministered to me most, those who have brought the most healing in my life, can I, can I be honest with you? People dying. People who are dying from cancer and Lou Gehrig's disease and other things with confidence that this is true. To witness and watch and sit at bedside with somebody who is dying and hoping at the same time will take your breath away. It will mend something in you that, 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 that's bruised and smoldering like nothing else will. To see that this is true and I'm witnessing it right now. The other is our community of boys and girls and men and women with special needs and disabilities. We've got a ton of them in our church. Many of them serve at the communion tables. Many of them handed you your bulletins on the way in and, and will we'll say goodbye to you on the way out. And that's just the way it ought to be. Sundays are one of the days that, 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 that heals me the most. And a huge part of that is that I know I'm going to come here to Christ Presbyterian and I'm going to get my hug from Sam and my high five from Nathan and my fist bump from William and my humor from Judah and my warm greeting from Katie in the back row and my big smile from the other Katie in the front row, the longing look from Abby who does not know how to speak but who does know how to communicate and my enthusiastic hello from Matthew who knows more details about me and my family members than I do. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Who's here to pastor who anyway? Who are the leaders anyway? Who are the pace setters and the front runners Anyway, it's people like Nowen's friend, Adam. They have a mission. By being simply, quietly, and uniquely there. We're a hospital, but we're also meant to be an ambulance service. You know how Christianity won the heart of Rome? They had no power. They had no resources. They were persecuted minority. But by the third century AD, Christianity became the most powerful influential movement in the entire Roman Empire in spite of one emperor after another trying to exterminate the Christians. You know, the ancient church father Tertullian said, it's the blood of the martyrs that have become the seed of the church. What was their secret? We have it on written record. Emperors bemoaning this grass, grassroots movement called Christianity, bemoaning the fact that they take better care of our poor than we do. And so we can't stop their growth. 
One historian, one secular historian, said that the secret to the growth of the Christian movement in Rome was their kindness to all, infecting their neighbors, including and especially those who did not share their beliefs, infecting their neighbors with love. Having been conquered by the stooping and suffering servant Jesus, they conquered the world. You know that over one-third of the world's population of, 77, of, 70, of 7 billion people follows Jesus today. Billions of people today. Because of churches like ours that have seen themselves as being on mission to become the first and the best responders wherever they see weakness, wherever they see vileness, and wherever they see poverty among their neighbors because Christ has done the same for us. And so before Todd comes forward, this is how we're going to close the sermon. We're going to do it together. You're going to preach the last sentence of the sermon or sentences of the sermon together. Uh, and we're going to stand together now and we're going to recite uh, a section from Christ Press's extended vision statement. And so would you do that with me now? And we'll transition now into our pre-communion time. As those who have received God's mercy in Christ, what is our calling toward our neighbors in need? As Christ's ambassadors to our neighbors in need, we will aspire to live lives of mercy and justice. We will give special attention to and generously channel our resources toward improving conditions and systems, whether spiritual, social, economic, or vocational, for the poor, immigrants and refugees, ethnic and other minorities, and others who lack resources, opportunity, or privilege. We will embrace the idea that as conditions improve for those who have power, conditions must also improve for those who lack power and never at their expense. For wealth, privilege, and power are given to be stewarded and shared for the benefit of all, not protected and kept merely for the benefit of some. Thanks be to God. Now, Todd Teller will come forward and serve us in communion. You can be seated.